If you would take your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that is going to be our outline and our sermon for today, 2 Corinthians 5. The lessons that I'm bringing have to do with influence, uh, specifically how it is that God wants us to be influential in the lives of other people. Uh, He's been influential in our life as Eric started us off on Sunday morning. And he expects us to take all the good things that he's done for us and the good that he's given us and share that with a dark world. We're to be the light of the world. This particular lesson is, I'll tell you up front, one of, um, one of the ones that I come back to a lot in my life. There are times where I'm just not doing a very good job of being influential, of sharing God's things, of being who I ought to be. And when I'm feeling that way, this is the chapter that I come back to. And I hope that by the time I'm done showing you what's in it, it'll be something that you appreciate as well. I want to show you what's at the end of this chapter. Look here at 2 Corinthians 5, around verse 20. Paul wrote, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Eric just got done kind of talking about identity and and what it means to have certain identity in Christ. And there's that list that he made. I was wondering how long that was going to go, but it could have gone for days. Honestly, scripture says a lot of things about us. Now here, Paul refers to himself and his fellows that are with him as ambassadors for Christ. I want you to think about that for just a minute. Ambassadors for Christ. Surely that's what the apostles were. They were sent by Jesus Christ himself to share the gospel and to, like it says in the text, make appeals to people, to beg people to be reconciled to God. Um, sometimes though I've, I've heard preachers say that doesn't refer to all Christians. That's just for the apostles. I want you to think a little bit with me about what an ambassador actually is. Uh, maybe that's hard to conceptualize if you've never been a part of this kind of thing, but maybe the last couple of months has helped us. You guys see what happened in Afghanistan the last couple of months? Uh, All the things that took place in Kabul and uh, how we had to get out of there, all of our people and lots of people from there got on airplanes and came to our country. Think about the hostile environment that that place was. Did you know that we had an ambassador there? Did you know that? Can you imagine being somebody who actually is a citizen of like a place like this? And has to go live in another place that really isn't where they're from. It's not their people. But they're there really to to have a relationship with these people. To help them kind of understand where they're from and the people that they represent. And isn't that exactly how Christians are described? That we are citizens of a kingdom of heaven. As Jesus would say in John chapter 17, we are in the world, but we are not what? We're not of the world. But what we're doing here in this place that really we feel like a foreigner, like an alien, 
is we're trying to appeal to people that there is a country, there's a place, there's another realm that they could belong to. And I'm going to, by the end of this, I hope I'll show you that really God expects every one of us who have received reconciliation to God to be ministers of reconciliation, to be ambassadors for Christ. So one more question before we dig into this. How are you doing with that? Are you like me when you start thinking about that and you realize maybe you've just become real comfortable in this country, in this place. This does feel like home. Uh, That you haven't spent very much time appealing to people or begging people to be reconciled to God. But you'd like to get there. Would you like to get there? You ever known somebody that was just a fabulous ambassador, a fabulous evangelist? They... They just talk to people about the Lord all the time. I was very blessed in my young life to get to know Barry. Uh, Barry's always been that. Always someone who cared about souls. I've been blessed to see people like Eric, who right there in front of me in Minnesota, when he first became a Christian, jumped right into the role of being an evangelist and was sharing the gospel with all kinds of people. You know people like that? You know what I've always wished I could figure out was what made them tick. Like what was going on in their brains? What was going on in their hearts that made them be these kind of people? And if you've ever had a chance to sit with or be close with someone that is like this, you've learned some things about them. Now, even if you don't know somebody or if they don't know how to articulate why they are the way they are, This chapter can do it for us. Did you notice the first word of verse 20? My version says, therefore. Your version might say something like, now then. It's a conclusion kind of paragraph. He has said something before this that got him to the place where he said, therefore, I'm an ambassador. But watch how he does this in this text. Go back to verse 17. What's the first word of verse 17? Therefore, if you have the New American Standard, some versions might use a different word like so or now then again. But but the idea is he's going to say something and then therefore this. Look at verse uh, 16. Therefore, you see it? Look up there at verse 11. Therefore, look up there at verse 9. Therefore, look up there at verse 6. Therefore, has anybody ever noticed that Paul writes long sentences? You guys ever noticed that? You ever had a friend like this? Like they'll start talking and they'll say something like, therefore this and therefore this and then this and therefore this. And they're making all these conclusions. And you start thinking after a little while, like, man, what are you talking about? Like that's over my head. Here's the issue. When you have. Some friend like this that that starts with something, a premise, an observation. Uh, they 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 see something that maybe you've missed, but then they begin to expound on what that thing means. Therefore, this. Therefore, this. Therefore, this. And then they get to their grand conclusion and say, "Therefore, this is the answer." Sometimes you need to go back over it again. Could you make that argument again? Could you tell me what you were saying? I want to show you what I believe to be one of the purest 
most beautiful opening of an evangelist's heart in all the Bible. Like Paul is about to expose from within himself why he is one of the greatest ambassadors that ever lived. Let's work through it. Go back to verse 1 and notice how this chapter begins. For we know... Now, here, before I read what Paul knew, I want you to notice it's not a conclusion. It's a, it's a premise. He starts with something that he knows to be true. Not that he hopes, not that he wishes, not that he thinks. He knows this to be the case. And every other therefore in the chapter comes from this premise. Now, what did he know? We know... That if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the spirit as a pledge. All right. If you could summarize what Paul just said, what did he know to be true about himself? Well, essentially, here's what he says. I know that I'm an eternal being living in a temporary shelter. That I am somebody who lives in a tent, my version says. And one of these days, the eternal part of me is going to get out of this tent and go to the thing and be a, be in the thing that God made without hands that's eternal, that's forever. I am an eternal being in a temporary body. Is that powerful? You ever watch Paul in the book of Acts? And Paul will go to a city, and he'll go straight to the synagogue of the Jews. And after a little while, when you're reading Acts, you start thinking, Paul, don't do that. Like, don't go there. Do you know what happens there? And Paul says, yeah, I convinced some people that Jesus is the Christ. Yeah, 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 that's good, Paul. But do you know what else happens there? Yeah, I know. Everybody else that doesn't, isn't convinced hates my guts. And usually they try to kill me. Sometimes they'll throw rocks at me. In fact, there was one time they threw so many rocks at Paul that they pretty much killed him, I guess. They drug him outside the city and left him there for dead. How could Paul continue to do that? I think about that moment when he woke up, when God woke him up from being all bloody and you know beat down from the rocks. If that had been Andy Cantrell, it would have said, and Andy woke up and realized what happened and went home. Like, that's it for me. But he went back into the same city. Why? Because he was an eternal being in a temporary body. You know what the worst thing that could happen was? They could get him out of his tent and he'd get to go home. And I'll tell you, that produces in people 
a different way of looking at things. The world themselves, that's Paul's premise to everything that he says in this chapter. There's a quote that I I read a long time ago, and it was attributed when I read it to C.S. Lewis. So like the first 20 times I said the quote, I said, C.S. Lewis said, and then I finally figured out that he didn't. It's actually a guy named George MacDonald, but nobody knows who that is. But listen to this quote. I like this quote. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. You ever notice how we talk? We talk about our soul like it's not us. We talk about our spiritual life like it's something apart from our actual life. You know, see, who we are in our essence is made in the image of God, eternal beings. We are a soul. We don't have that. That's not something that we're just in possession of. What we have for a little while is an earthly body. And I'll tell you, if you dwell on that for a little while, you'll start changing the way you think about things. So what's the first conclusion Paul makes from this? Look at verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. This just makes sense, doesn't it? If Paul knew that he was an eternal being in a temporary tent, and one day he could leave the tent and live in the body that God had prepared for him always, and that's why God made us according to verse 5 and gave the Spirit to us as a pledge. Paul's first thing is, therefore, I am always of good courage. Your version might say, I am confident. Do you have a problem with that sometimes? Especially when it comes to talking to others. Now, in this particular context, Paul's talking about being confident in the life that he lives for God. But I'll tell you, this idea of courage and confidence, I told you last night, has always been one of my biggest problems. You know what really started to change that for me? To become a more courageous person, just about on every level was when I saw what the Bible said at the end of the Bible about the cowardly. Look at Revelation chapter 21. When I finally saw this, something in me changed about the idea of human courage. But Revelation 21 verse 7 says this, He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. You know, the book of Revelation is all about overcoming. And actually, much of the New Testament is about the idea that Christians are overcomers of the world. Remember what 1 John um, chapter 5, verse 4, I believe it is, says uh, that our faith is what overcomes the world. Now, What are we supposed to overcome? What are we going to overcome? Look at the next verse, verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving 
and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You ever wondered why cowardly is the first thing on the list? I mean, I get the unbelieving. I get the, uh, the, the murderers, the abominable, the immoral, the sorcerers. I mean, that list of who's going to be in hell makes a lot of sense. But why is the cowardly first? I think you all realize this. Do you know anybody that you would really like to talk to them about the Lord, but they just won't talk to you? It's almost like they're afraid to talk to you. I'll tell you what hell's going to be filled with is a lot of human beings who just were too afraid to ask the questions they needed to ask. God put eternity within our hearts. God gave us all kinds of capacity to understand and question and think about things. But you know what lots of human beings don't want to do? They don't want to ask questions like, who am I? Where am I from? Where am I going? What's this about? And that cowardice keeps them from ever believing. And and it's one of the greatest sins of mankind. But we join in that kind of thing when we're cowardly as well to even address it with them. And so Paul goes, go back to uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, because I know who I am, therefore I'm always of good courage. So we need to kind of check ourselves against that. Now look at the next thing that he says in verse 9. The next therefore. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. All right. If the first, therefore, is courage, what is the next, therefore, in verse 9? Ambition. Ambition. Ambition's a little bit tricky. If I was to ask you what your ambition in life is, I know we're in church, so you have to like give Jesus answers. Maybe this would be a better way to do it. What if we begin to ask people who know you best, what's their ambition? Because understanding who we really are in the first five verses should lead us to a conclusion like this. I have as my ambition in my life to please the God that made me. Because I know, as Paul goes on to say, that someday I'm going to be absent from this body. I'm going to be in front of the Lord and I'm going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, I make it my ambition to please God. So I struggle with confidence. I struggle with ambition. And according to Paul, the way I'm going to get there is by dwelling on what we know to be true in verses one through five. Now, do you agree with this? That what Paul just said in these first nine or ten verses is kind of Christianity 101. It's like anybody that's a Christian, here's what they know. Someday we're going to die. We're going to leave this body. We're going to appear before God. 
and we're going to be judged. So we better be, we better be people who make it our ambition to please God because one day we're going to answer for everything we've done. That's Christianity. Tell you the problem with most of my life and most of the Christians I know is we put a period right there. That's all our life is. Is trying to make sure we please God so that when we stand before the judgment seat of God, we get it right. I want you to notice something in verse 10 that Paul does. Did you notice he doesn't say, I must appear before the judgment seat? He says, we all must. And when you start thinking about that, we all must. It changes things. You know, when Eric first became a Christian, I'm going to embarrass him for a minute. When Eric first became a Christian, he was so zealous. Uh, I think he still is, but I've not been around him in a while. We'd go into a coffee shop. There'd be somebody reading the Bible. And I'd say, Eric, let's figure out how to talk to them. And Eric would just run right over to him and be like, hey, you're reading the Bible. What do you think about baptism? And I'd be like, don't do that. What are you doing? You're doing it all wrong. But for whatever reason, they'd start talking. He'd get a study. He'd teach him the gospel. And I can name them. They're still worshiping with us up there. I mean, I knew better because I'm such a great evangelist. But man, this kid, he was so brave to just go like jump in with both feet. I asked him one day, what makes you weird like that? How do you do that? You know what he said to me? Do you remember what he said? He said, every time I look at a human being, I think about them standing before the judgment seat of God. And I got to talk to him. Look what Paul says next in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. The Christian who only thinks about themselves standing before the judgment seat of God will just live their life trying to please God. But the Christian who will go one step further to thinking about every person they see standing before the judgment seat of God and they've developed the love of God in their hearts will be moved by understanding the fear of God to try to persuade people. But we're only halfway through the chapter. Paul goes on here and he says, We are made manifest to God, verse 11. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance, not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You know, there's some of that stuff that Paul says in like verses 11, 12, that are really about him and the Corinthians. So I don't, I'm not going to talk about that so much. But do you notice when Paul says, look, 
Because I know about the judgment seat of God, because I know the fear of the Lord, I persuade people. Sometimes it looks like this. Look at verse 13. Sometimes people think I'm crazy. If we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're of sound mind, it's for you. Meaning, I'll pull out all the stops to try to convince you. And if you think I'm crazy, that's fine. I'm doing that for God to try to reach you. If you think I'm of sound mind making good arguments, that's because I care about you. You know why? Because fear was not the only thing that motivated Paul. Look at verse 14. The other thing that compelled him was the love of Christ. Look, if you can't get in touch with being afraid enough for people going to hell, maybe you can be stirred up enough by the love of Christ. To know that because of how he loves them and that they can be somebody different, maybe it'll compel you to try to share the story. What's the next therefore? Look at verse 16. So Paul gets to verse 16 and he says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us The word of reconciliation. All right, a couple observations. That last part of the reading, verse uh, 19 there, uh, verse 18 and 19. You see how Paul gives this kind of equation? God reconciled us to himself. And then in verse 19, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you know who is supposed to be about the ministry of reconciliation? Every reconciled person. If God reconciled you, he gave you the ministry of reconciliation. Now, back up a little bit and go back to what he said in verse 16. Paul makes this statement that I've I've tried to wrap my mind around over the years. He says, therefore, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Remember that tent thing at the beginning? Everybody, not just me, everybody is an eternal being living in an earthly tent. Do you think some people have messed up their tent pretty well? Drug it through the mud. There's lots of snags and rips and tears and scars. and yeah. You know what I usually see when I look at people? Them, the outside. There was a commercial that happened a while back. I don't even remember what it was for. So it wasn't a very good commercial. But they had people like going through their day. And every time they would like go through something, somebody would get annoyed at them because they were either rude or unthoughtful. But then all of a sudden above their head would appear what was actually going on inside of them. Like their emotional state. And and what the commercial was trying to say is you don't always know what's going on with people inside. Right? Stephen Covey wrote a story about this. I think it was in uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, He talked about being on a subway train one time. 
And this man got on with these couple of kids and they were just wreaking havoc and causing trouble and being loud. And the man was just staring out the window, completely ignoring these minions. And uh, everybody was getting really tense and frustrated and upset. And they were beginning to talk to each other and, and say things, hoping he would hear. And finally, somebody spoke up, was brave enough to say what nobody else would say. And said, hey, buddy, why don't you take care of your kids? They're causing trouble. And the man looked up and kind of said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't notice. Uh, You know, he said, uh, we're coming back from the hospital. And uh, their mom and my wife just passed away. Stephen Covey said, in that moment, everything changed. People began to help. People began to entertain the kids and everything changed. Are we really supposed to be like that though? Turn to Matthew 9 for a minute. There's one of the more powerful passages to me about this. Matthew 9, verse 35 says, Jesus was going through all cities, all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. I want you to notice the word every in that verse. Jesus is going to every city. A lot of us want to avoid certain cities. He was speaking to every kind of problem of men, every disease, every illness. There wasn't any place or anything off limits for him. But now notice what verse 36 says. Seeing the multitudes, that word people there literally means crowds, like big groups of people. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Verse 36 and 37 um, get exactly turned upside down by Christians today. We really ought to pay attention to the way Jesus thought and talked. Let me illustrate it this way. See, verse 36 says, seeing the multitudes, the crowds. When was the last time you were in a crowd? Like a real crowd. You went to a ball game or a a theme park. Uh, You were somewhere where there was just like a mass of humanity, a state fair or something. I know it's been a while for some of us. But think back. And over here you see somebody who's immodestly dressed. I don't think that happens in, down here in Florida, does it? <laughs> and you got to turn your kids' eyes away. And over here, somebody's getting drunk and starting a fight. And over here, somebody's saying some words that you got to cover your kids' ears. And you begin to think, what am I doing out here? This is awful. So here's how this verse reads for modern day Christians. Seeing the crowds... They feel compassion for themselves because they're distressed and dispirited by these people who have no shepherd. Shame on me. Why would I be distressed? 
and dispirited for me. Why would I have compassion on me? Listen, folks, God's had compassion on us. We don't need to be distressed about our situation. I don't care how bad it gets. There isn't much to be distressed for us. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. He makes us lie down in green pastures. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and everybody's immodest and everybody cusses and everybody's mean. Why would we have compassion on us? I no longer see anyone according to the flesh, Paul said. I know they have problems. I know they've made messes. But somewhere underneath all of that is somebody made in the image of God who is redeemable and reconcilable. So then Jesus said this other thing. We get backwards in verse 37. He looks at his apostles and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. You know what Christians usually say? Nobody wants to hear it anymore. There's all of us workers and there's nothing in the harvest out there. Folks, we're fooling ourselves. The problem has always been the workers. Always. And the fact of the matter is, most of us aren't working. And sometimes it's me. What's going to change that? Go back to 2 Corinthians 5. We know that when our earthly tent is destroyed, we have a building not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. One day, we're going to leave this body. We're going to be with God. We have courage and ambition to please God because we're going to stand before the judgment seat. Not just us, everybody. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. The love of Christ compels us because he can make people new. We're the proof of it. Everybody can be a new creation. And so what do we get to finally? Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. You want to get there? You know, this verse says one more thing I want to illustrate. He says... As God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of God. Have you ever begged anybody to be reconciled to God? You know, most of my life, my best, my best efforts were like dropping little hints to people. Hey, you should think about God. Hey, maybe you should... uh, Ask some questions. Hey, would you like to talk about Jesus? Those are appeals. I get it. But when I think back over my life, there's not very many people that I've begged. A few years ago, my grandmother was getting close to death. My mom's mom. My mom had died earlier in her life. um, And I wasn't real close with this grandmother. She had, she'd actually been angry that my mom had left their religion to become a New Testament Christian. But as my grandma got older and was getting close to death, I got a chance to go visit her. 
I was in San Diego and somebody told me that she didn't have long. So I went over to her house and she was sitting in the backyard and I went back there. She recognized me and she said, Andy, is that you? I said, yeah. I said, Grandma, how are you doing? And she, she got tears in her eyes and she, uh, she said something like, I'm not ready to die. I'm scared. I don't want to meet God yet. I'd never had an opportunity like this with my grandma before. And so I said, Grandma, you don't have to be afraid. God tells us in his word how to be ready. It's not something that you have to fear. Let me show you. Let me show you what the Bible says about that. And I got up to go grab my Bible out of the car. And she said, no, no, stay here. I said, no, Grandma, let me go get my Bible. I just want to show you what it says. And as quickly as she had softened up, she hardened back up. And she said, no, no. And I gave it one more try. Grandma, please. And she said, stop. Don't talk to me about it anymore. I'm just being an old woman. And so I stopped talking. And I said goodbye. And I drove away. And she left her tent. If I could go back, I'd have been more stubborn. I'd have pulled out every stop. Don't tell me to stop, Grandma. I'm your grandson. You got to listen to me. You've always been so stubborn. Why won't you just listen to what God has to say? And if she got mad, I'd have pushed right back. Why? Why don't we feel so strongly about this? Because sometimes we forget that we're living in a tent that one day, pretty soon, we're going to leave behind. Let's become ambassadors for Christ. Thanks for your attention. I will appeal to you tonight and beg you, if that's the case, to be reconciled to God if you're not. One of these days, you're going to leave this body and you're going to stand before him and you're going to have to answer to him. But the Lord Jesus died not only so that you could be forgiven, but that you could be a new creation. Everything will change with him. And he'll give you a ministry in your life of being the ambassadors for God. It's a wonderful life to live. But if you've not given him your life, we want to encourage you to do that tonight. However we can help you, let us know while we stand and sing together.